0: Again, friends, uh, both to those of you who are here worshiping in person and those worshiping online, uh, welcome back for what is week three, week three of our Advent journey here together uh, at our church. And if you are new here to the peak, if you're new to our community or new to a church that celebrates Advent, we've been saying the last couple of weeks that one of the incredible gifts that Advent offers us is Advent is the season of the year, every year, whereby we use the unique opportunity of the four weeks leading up to Christmas to shift from maybe a, a sort of passive relationship with God. Some of us, uh, you, maybe we stumbled into Advent over the last couple of weeks, last couple of months, we've had sort of like a passive engagement with God, not really actively searching out for deeper connection, deeper listening, deeper faith, uh, but sort of, sort of passively like, well, Jesus, if you, you want to speak, I'm, I'm here, uh, sort of thing. Advent uh, is different. Advent is a, a chance to hit the reset button. It's an opportunity for us to say, no, 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 I'm going to actively engage this thing. I'm going to actively engage Jesus because I want to hear uh, from this God. And I want to know what kind of life this God is orchestrating for me. And so, if that's you, no judgment. Uh, I feel like these last 22 months have been, uh, these last 20, 22 months have been really, really hard. And so, uh, I think a lot of us are stumbling into this Advent season with a renewed hope, a renewed faith, and some renewed urgency to re engage God again. And uh, we're going to come alongside you and help with that. So uh, one of the things that we did when Amanda and I designed this sermon series several months ago is we put together a sermon series that would also be accompanied by practices. You'd have very real, very practical disciplines that really embody the Advent posture. That if we do these things, if we commit to these things, if we day in and day out practice these things, we will find ourselves uh, becoming more open, uh, becoming more... Uh, eager and uh, honestly a little bit more uh, sort of connected to the Spirit of God at work in and around us all the time. And so week one, this is the very beginning of Advent, we talked about the very first discipline of the Advent season is love. That if you find yourself ever, if you are ever feeling stale or stagnant or complacent in your faith, start with love. What does Jesus say? It's the greatest of all the commandments. Love the Lord your God all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so we talked about that. We talked about how do you do that? How do you re-engage that? What are some practices we can do to love God again uh, and love others? Week two, this was last week, we talked about uh, the other discipline, the other Advent discipline that uh, we would do well to commit ourselves to, is humility. That this whole sermon series uh, captures the amazing, miraculous message of Christmas, that God came down to earth, right? And that's all well and good, but then it's also a sort of reminder that if you want to follow Jesus, that you're also going to follow Jesus into some low, low, humble, downly places, right? Week three is today, and so today we're going to continue this conversation further. We're going to talk about yet another practice, yet another discipline that uh, we think at at sort of Advent resembles, that we think uh, gets at the heart and the posture of Advent, and so today we're going to talk about the discipline of gratitude. If we want to celebrate Christmas and celebrate Advent well this year, I don't think you can do so without a healthy dose of gratitude. Now, I'm going to warn you, I'm going to warn you, today, we ain't talking about like a cheap gratitude. You know what I'm saying? Like the gratitude you stumble through in Target after church today, and it's like the gratitude that's like on every sweatshirt, on every coffee mug. You go to Kirkland's, which smells like heaven on earth. Um, <laughs> gratitude is the little sign that hangs above every single kitchen in that place. I ain't talking about that type of gratitude today. Cheap gratitude. Although the amount of money my wife spends at Target, it is anything but cheap uh, in our household. Today, I want to talk about a gratitude that actually has the power to save your life. I mean that. I'm not exaggerating. Some of us stumbled into Advent this year, and if we were honest, uh, we've been pretty unhappy with our lives for a long time. And some of us have good reason to be, right? Some of us have gone through a lot of hardship, we're going through a nasty breakup, we lost our job, a difficult health diagnosis. But others of us, we've been unhappy for so, so long, not because there's nothing good happening in your life, but because sort of hardwired into the human condition is we just don't pay attention to those things. We take them for granted. We don't stop and survey all the wonderful, amazing things going on. We focus all our attention on the bad. And so as a result of that, we live a lot of unhappy lives, not because we don't have goodness, but we don't go looking for it. Check this out. Science backs this up. Science backs this up. So neurologists have found that when they've studied our human brain, they have found that when something bad happens to you, so some sort of suffering or betrayal or rejection or something like that, when that happens to human beings, it sticks to your brain like Velcro immediately. Your brain is like a supercomputer. It's always scanning for things to store so that it can protect you from those very things in the future. And so a negative, painful things happen to you, your brain goes, ooh, I never want to go through that again, store that immediately, let's go, put that right there, right in the front of the brain, right there. And conversely, sadly, what neurologists have found is that, uh, so when that, when bad things happen to you, they stick immediately. When good things happen to you, they bounce off of your brain like Teflon. You know, I just have found that if you actually want the good things in your life to become an active part of who you are, your memory, your existence, you actually have to stop and savor them for at least 15 seconds. You have to stop and go, holy cow. No, 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 this is it. This is what Kyle was talking about. This is the good stuff. Okay, think about it, think about it, savoring, savoring, savoring. Like you have to actively do that. Or it goes away. You forget. That's the type of gratitude we're going to explore today. The gratitude that it costs you something. It requires something of you. Friends, as much as I love the warm, fuzzy feelings and the smells of all of the gratitude candles I get when I walk into Target, it doesn't last. I'm finding the only gratitude that lasts is the one that I discipline myself, that I build every day. Thankfully for us, in addition to studies in science and neurology, uh, scripture also testifies to this. There's a number of scripture passages that point to this, and today is one such passage. And so, if you have your Bibles with you and you want to go to return back to Isaiah chapter 12, I'd go ahead and invite you to do so. Grab a smart device, or if you brought your Bibles with you, go and return to Isaiah chapter 12. If you're watching online, feel free to do so now. Um, to give you a little bit of the backstory, give you a little bit of uh, more context of the book of Isaiah, what it is, uh, the book of Isaiah is actually a really, really fascinating book. It's a really, really fascinating book Um, in that the book itself actually doesn't take place just in one time period. It takes place during three separate time periods. So this is the way it breaks down. So uh, most scholars believe that when you study Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, this is what's referred to as Isaiah 1. This took place... It was written by an author before Israel went into exile. So eventually we learn that the Assyrian army comes down, they conquer Israel, they haul them off to live as prisoners of war. I, chapters 1 through 39 takes place before that event. Chapters 40 through 55 take place during exile. So this is while Israel is living as like a prisoner of war, they're living in these camps, or living in these sort of secluded areas in Assyria and that sort of thing, and they're writing the contents of the book during that time. And then chapters 56 through 66 takes place after they're set free, after they're able to come home and enjoy being in Jerusalem again. Why this is so important is because where does Isaiah chapter 12 take place? Isaiah 1. So this takes place before the Assyrians come down and conquer the people of Israel. That's super, super important because When you go back and you read most of the chapters in 1 through 39, most of them are God speaking to his people, telling them to get their act together. Most of chapters 1 through 39 is a word of warning. It's God saying to Israel, Look, pay attention you're wandering off again, you're acting really unjustly towards one another, you're worshiping idols, you're being selfish, you're being greedy. This is not the type of people you said you were going to be. This is not the type of people we covenanted to being. You're wandering off track. Please stop. Over and over and over again. This is the message of chapters 1 through 39. And then, sort of like, God sneaks in there, chapter 12. Chapter 12, you heard a couple moments ago, it didn't read that way, did it? It was full of hope. It was full of thanksgiving. It was full of gratitude. What does it say? Verse 1. In that day, you will sing, I will praise you, O Lord. What's happening here? God is saying, check this out. I need you guys to stop doing what you're doing. Stop acting ungodly. Stop acting rebellious. Stop acting selfish. Otherwise, it's not going to go well for you. But then in chapter 12, God says this. But guess what? after you the assyrians come and conquer you and you live as exiles for a number of years guess what i will still not lose hope in you i will not stop loving you i will restore you again and on that day you will sing again you'll have hope again you'll have joy again it's almost as if god was saying to his children look I can't warn you enough that the path you're headed down is going to lead towards nothing but destruction, nothing but pain. I would advise you not to go that way, but even if you do, I will come after you, and I will save you. I was telling this story in between services. Um, One of my children, uh, if you warn that child, hey, don't do this, it will go bad for you, that child will go, okay, great, and she'll find something else to do. My other child, when we say to him, hey, uh, I wouldn't do that. It's not going to go well for you. In his own uh, fourth grade vocabulary, says, I'm going to do it anyway, but then I'm going to cry about it and I want you to hug me after. (laughs) I think a lot about that when I read Isaiah chapter 12. That over and over again, one of the things I love so much about Jesus is that when Jesus warns me not to do something, when Jesus is warning me about not to go down a particular path and live a particular lifestyle, Jesus doesn't use the tactics that we use. Fear, intimidation, shame. We love those. Like, those are our go-tos. Like, if you want to stop somebody from doing something that you don't want them to do, what do you do? You just, like, heap a bunch of shame on them, or you just warn them of all the things that could go wrong. You just sort of scare the daylights out of them so they don't keep going that way. And over and over and over again, Jesus doesn't do that. What is the strategy that God is using here in Isaiah chapter 12? Jesus is saying, God is saying to his people, please don't do it. And the best case I got for why you shouldn't do it is because it's going to cause you a lot of pain. It's going to cause me a lot of pain. But I will come back and save you. I will come after you and save you. You won't be able to outrun my grace, you won't be able to outpace, outsin my love for you. And we're going to move on in a minute, but I want to stop here just for a quick second because, friends, that's the gospel. it, that is the gospel. And if there is a place in Christianity that needs the most reformation, it's this. It's because in so many churches you step into today, from so many preachers uh, who preach the message, often what you get from them is not that. You get, hey, if you stop making mistakes, if you stop living the way that you're living, if you stop doing all those harmful, wrong things, then God will love you. Then God will receive you. God will accept you. God will save you. That's not the gospel. What makes the news of Jesus so compelling is it as a God who comes along and says, even if you don't, I won't stop loving you. I can't stop loving you. Even if you don't. Even if you won't quit, if you commit to just living that life where every, it's obvious to everybody that it's not going to end well for you, it's not going to end well for the people around you, even if you don't listen to me, it doesn't matter because I'll still run after you, I'll still come to save you, I'll still do everything in my power to grab your attention and try to captivate you. That ain't nobody going to love you like I can. That's the gospel. And that's why they're giving thanks. That's why here in Isaiah chapter 12, they're moved the way in which they're moved. It's because they're now realizing on a profound level that, and this is the way, friends, this is my chief belief when it comes to the gospel. They're realizing on a personal, fundamental level that the gospel is not a message. It's not a debate. It's not a discussion as to whether or not God wants to be with us. It's whether we want to be with God. Whenever I have conversations, and I have these on numerous occasions, on a coffee or in my office, people asking about the afterlife, and what's my view on eternality, and blah, 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 I always say to them, the biggest thing you need to know is that it's not a question of whether or not God wants to be with you. It's a matter of if and when we encounter the full revelation of who Jesus is, if we want to be a part of that kingdom or not. The ship sailed a long time ago, whether or not it was God who wanted us. God proved that fact. And so again, here in Isaiah chapter 12, they're giving thanks for that. They're, they're celebrating that. They're realizing that on a profound and personal level. And then on the rest of the passage, and this is where I want to spend the rest of our time today. In the rest of the passage in Isaiah chapter 12, uh, what I think we get when we watch them, when we watch them sort of respond with gratitude, respond with thanksgiving, respond with appreciation— what we see here is kind of like a blueprint. It's kind of like a framework for what a life of gratitude pragmatically looks like, right? So it's not a Target sweatshirt. Like what, so what is it then, Kyle? Like what, is it, what does it look like to live a life of gratitude? And I'm a pastor, so I'm always looking for alliterations. And so today I came up with three S's, the three S's of gratitude, the first of which is this. So going back to Isaiah chapter 12, it seems that the very first thing that's required of us the very first thing that we have to decide unequivocally to do if we want to live a grateful life is we have to make a shift. we got to make a shift. One of the things that the people of Israel are doing here in this moment is they're making a shift. They're saying, okay, we've been grumbling and complaining to God for many, many years. We've been ignoring God's advice for a really, really long time. We've been searching for meaning and fulfillment and joy and happiness outside of God for a really, really long time. That didn't work. So we're going to make a shift. And some of us here today, we find ourselves that stirring is happening in you because you're realizing you too need to make a shift. That a shift needs to happen in your mindset or maybe it's in your behavior. Another neurologist, a guy by the name of Alex Korb, uh, said this. He said, uh, one of the things that we have found in our research is that it's actually impossible to be both grateful and jealous at the same time. Now, some of you are going to try later today. I'm going to find you like, both. (laughs) But it's impossible. It's impossible to be truly, fully grateful and jealous at the same time. Truly and fully grateful and selfish at the same time. Truly, fully grateful, and bitter and resentful and hateful towards someone else. It's impossible. Why? Because one always wins out. One always carries the day, at least in my life. One always ends up sort of going, well, yeah, they're, they're a good person, over," but like, and then that's, and just sort of go down a spiral, and I think about all the negative, nasty things for the rest of the day. This is precisely why uh, the Apostle Paul said what he said in Philippians chapter 4. He said, look, part of the Christian life, part of uh, what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that you have to, like, intentionally discipline yourself to fix your thoughts. Fix your thoughts upon what is right, what is true, what is honorable, what is pure, what is lovely, what is admirable. You have to think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Skip down. Then and only then will the God of peace be with you. I'm going to be vulnerable for a minute. It's embarrassing for me how long it took for me to realize that the only person in charge and the only person who can control my thought life is me. It's embarrassing how long it took me to learn that lesson for a good chunk of my life, what I did was I blamed my thoughts. Uh, I gave away control and power to my thoughts, to my circumstances, to so what was going on around me, the things that were happening in my favor or not in my favor, the people around me, what people said about me, what they liked, what they didn't like about me. For the longest time, I gave all control, all power, all authority over my thought life to the things around me. It wasn't until recently that I realized, oh, The only person in this world who can control what I think about is me. It's you. The longer I follow Jesus, the longer I'm starting to realize that one of the requirements, one of the basic requirements to be a follower of Jesus is mental toughness. Anybody heard that phrase before? Those of you who played sports, you probably heard this a lot from coaches and stuff like that. Be mentally tough. I think, there's something to Christi- I think there's something about that to Christianity. Mental toughness is this sort of, like, stubborn, just grumpy, like, I'm not going to stop believing in that thing, even when all the empirical evidence around me points to the contrary. I think in order to be a Christian, you have to be the sort of stubborn one that says, oh, my gosh. Okay, we're going through financial trouble. I just lost my job. Um, you're not working. So, um, okay. All the evidence says freak out and scream into a pillow. I must still do that. But then, I'm going to believe. Oh, this friendship, this relationship has been so toxic for so long, and it, I really want to savor it. I don't I don't know if I can or not, and I don't know if I'm going to find another friendship or someone who I I was that close with or that connected with for a really, really long time. All the evidence is pointing to the contrary, that I either have to stay in this toxic relationship or be alone. But I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe. Maybe with 2% of my heart today, but I'm going to believe. I'm going to give something. I'm going to believe. God's aware, that God's here, that God's going to make good on God's promises to look out for me and care for me no matter what. For some of us today, the first step to being grateful, to living a gratitude-filled life is you've got to make a shift. You've got to pick what type of mindset you want to be occupying day in and day out. Because more often than not, where your mind lives is where you live. So the first S, the first S of a gratitude-filled uh, life is making a shift. Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 12 and see what else we got. So going back and skipping down to verse 2, uh, another part of the passage reads this. It says, so in the day I will sing, uh, I, will, I will give praise to the Lord. You are angry with me, but not anymore. Now you comfort me. So let's skip down to verse 2. See, God has come to save me. I will trust in him and not be afraid. The Lord God is my strength and my song. He has given me victory. One of the reasons why I wanted to tease that part of the passage out is because um, the people of Israel hadn't been saying that or living that way for years, <laughs> for years. They wouldn't trust in God. They were trusting themselves. They were not, safe. They were not being uh, grateful and content with what was given to them. They were always wanting more. In fact, it always, it started in 1 Samuel chapter 8. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, God was looking after them. God was taking care of them. God was leading them. And they walked up to God and they said, so this is great, but like, everyone else has a king and we don't. Why do they get one and we don't? And God gives them one, begrudgingly, and from that moment on, they spent so much of their existence in the Old Testament not being content with that relationship with God, but always wanting more. Is that not the story of humanity, by the way? You just always want more, 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 more. So if you don't want to live that life anymore, then the second S is you have to learn, if you want to live a truly grateful life, is you got to learn how to savor. you got to learn how to stop and savor that which is given to you. And it doesn't just happen. You have to intentionally, willfully discipline yourself to savor the good that has come your way. Like we talked about earlier, the neurologist, you've got to savor at least for 15 seconds for it to even stay anywhere in your cognitive memory, I'll tell you another uh, practice I do. So this is another thing that I do, uh, which Marie says is kind of weird, but it works, so whatever. Um, Another thing that I do is I allow uh, past Kyle to speak and give wisdom to current Kyle. Now, to be very clear, you have to pick and choose which past Kyle you want uh, to come and minister to current Kyle because popped collar and diamond studded earrings Kyle. He was great. Very fun. We're just going to leave him right over there. (laughs) But one of the things that past Kyle can tell current Kyle is every single time you've wanted something uh, a relationship, to have kids, to buy your first home, to get a new car, or whatever. I mean, like, all, all the sort of material things, and all, also, like, the things that are attached to our heartstrings, like our dreams, our passions. One of the things that past Kyle always tells current Kyle is, listen, as much as you want to believe that the moment you get that thing you desperately want, and you want to believe it's going to provide every bit of joy and happiness that you've ever thought of in life, guess what? Every single time, so far, it has not satisfied you. So far, 100% of the time, whenever you found yourself, Kyle, really wanting something, yearning for something, obsessing over something, and saying to yourself, Ugh if I could just get this or if I can just reach that or if I can just reach this place in life or this place in the company or whatever, then I'll be happy, then I'll be content, then I'll be fine, and I won't want anything else. I promise. Past Kyle then comes along and says, Every single time you've done that so far, you've never been satisfied. Every single time. You're either underwhelmed because it wasn't what you thought it was going to be or wanted it to be. it couldn't live up to all the expectations you heaped upon it. Or you had already shift perspective and you're already wanting and yearning something else. You arrived at the new thing. So again, maybe for you it was like this dream to have kids and have a family. Or maybe for you it was to get married. Or maybe for you it was this job or uh, to, to buy your first house. Again, whatever it is for you there's this weird sort of voice that sort of clamors in the back of your brain and says, gosh, the moment you get those things, all your troubles will go away. It's going to be so great. And then you almost like accidentally stumble into it, and you're like, oh dang, like I'm here, but I'm already looking at the next thing. I had this epiphany the other day. I had this epiphany uh, last week. I was on a walk with my kids, and I was looking at them, and I was like, it's amazing how unhappy I, it's amazing how I can still be so unhappy with my life, when Kyle from 10 years ago, if he could see what Kyle today had, he would be like, dude, you got it, and yet I still spend all my time thinking about what I don't have, what I've yet to achieve, what I've yet to become. Interesting study um, that came out a long time ago, but the <laughs> results still hold. In 1978, uh, this study came out that found when they surveyed a bunch of folks, they found that lottery winners were not any, were not any happier than those who suffered some form of paralysis. Shocking. We always hail lottery winners it's like, oh my gosh, the moment that happened, like all my problems will go away case study after case study, they found there was no indicator that that particular sort of status in life made you any more or less happy. Instead, what they found is the people who were the happiest, the people who testified to having the most joy in life were the people who, day in, day out, committed to these three things. Number one, they reframed their situation, always. Always. They're always reframing their situation so when you go through suffering what happens your vision becomes that small you only see the problem you only see the the what's the issue going on so the people who are experiencing joy in life they're not ignoring that this thing is going wrong in their life they just open up the scope they open up the scope and remind themselves like oh yeah but i also have all this also going on too they reframe their situation. They do what I did in the green way of saying, holy cow, like, yeah, I don't have X, Y, and Z, but good gracious, look what I got. It's the famous quote from The Office. Anybody Office? The Office fans? Anybody? Okay. Um, it's my favorite quote where Andy says, dang, I'm going to butcher it, but he's like, dang, I wish someone would tell you you were going through the good old days when you were actually going through them. So the people who are experiencing the most joy and happiness in life, they reframe their situation. They practice gratitude, like we've been talking about. And thirdly and finally, they make a conscious choice to be generous with that which they've been given. They don't harbor it all to themselves. They don't become more stingy, more selfish. They become more generous, giving away that which has been given to them. And so, friends, as we close, that's the third and final uh, discipline. That's the third and final exercise. Uh, Verse 4 and 5 says this. Uh, okay, we, we, God, we are so grateful for all that you've done. God, we're so grateful for all that you've made possible. We're so grateful that you came to us. You found the graves that we dug for ourselves, and you yanked us out of them. We're so freaking excited and grateful about that that we're going to tell the nations of what you've done. We're going to let them know how mighty you are. We're going to sing to the Lord of all your wonderful things. We're going to make known his praise around the world. What is the third and final requirement of gratitude? you got to share it. you got to share it. you got to let other people get in on it. It can't only be for you. Listen, if you spend any time in church, if you spend any time in church, you know, because we talk about this all the time, how important it is to be generous. And we always talk about it in terms of the benefactor, right? That it's always really, really good to be generous for the sake of other people, right? I mean, I, again, like earlier this week, I was doing research, and I lost, like, I just stopped counting after 100. There's over 100 passages in scripture that talk about how important it is that we live generous lives. John Wesley, the founder of the United Methodist tradition, from where the peak hails its deep, deep roots, said that a Christian is someone who, yes, earns all they can, saves all they can, but then they give all they can. Why? Because they are fundamentally aware of what's been given to them. They can do no other than share. And so you know this. If you spent any time in church, you know how important it is to live a life of generosity, especially for the sake of someone else. But did you know the other reason why Jesus is so, so hell bent on helping us and coaxing us and inspiring us to live generous lives? is because it not only has the power to save someone else's life, it has the ability to save yours. God, what do you mean by that? There's a really powerful story. A really powerful story in the Old Testament. Specifically, it takes place in Exodus, where um, the people of Israel are wandering through the wilderness, they're wandering through the desert, they're hot, they're sticky, they've got dirty feet, and they're just grumpy, and um, God provides for them. God cares for them. God gives them manna. Uh, those of you who have never read this part of the story before, it was like this crusty bread-like substance. Um, anyway, uh, but it was everything they needed. It was everything they needed. And God sent it every single day. And the, but the requirement was, God said, look, here's the deal. I'm going to send you more than enough manna. It's going to take care of you, take what you need, take what your family needs, eat it all up. You'll have more than what you, de- what you need. My only requirement is, when I send it to you, don't take more than what you need. And so this is what you see here in this uh, Exodus chapter 16, verses 19 and 20. So then Moses told them, don't keep any of it until morning. So don't, don't keep extras. Like, God will send a new fresh batch in the morning. Don't keep extras out of sort of distrust of God. Of like, well, eh, I don't know. Don't do that because when you don't, look, some of them didn't. They kept some until morning, and by then it was full of maggots and had a terrible smell. One of the things that this story has always done for me is it has taught me that when it comes to God's gifts, God's blessings, I've come to know in my own life that there are always two things. They're always abundant, but perishable. The blessings that God has bestowed upon my life, all of the gifts, all the goodness that God has lavished upon me, they're abundant. They're more than I could ever ask or need, and yet they are also perishable. Think of it in terms of a grocery store. Some of you are going to go to Costco after this, and when you get there, there are some things that you're going to purchase that are perishable, right? Uh, maybe for you, it's, so for us, it's always bananas. I cannot, for the life of me, figure out, like, the green to, like, yellow ratio, and so they're either, like, stay super hard all week, or then they get, like, brown and bleh. Anyway, there's some things that you're going to buy that are perishable, and there's some things that will last through a nuclear apocalypse, Right? <laughs> By the way, let's see if anybody can get it. First service couldn't get it. Can anyone name the food with the longest shelf life? Well done, Paula Jennings. Answer, white rice. Give it up for Paula this morning. Well done, well done. Not to get too vulnerable, but do you have like a nuclear shelter under your house? Is that why you know the answer to this question? Shelves, okay. (laughs) Just a shelf. What I've found is that God's blessings are the former. That the good things that God, all the good things that God has given to me, they're perishable. What I mean by that? Meaning that God always tends to give me way more than I ever need, way more than I could ever ask But the purpose was so that I didn't keep it to myself, but so that I shared it with someone else. Because the moment that I do keep it for myself, at least in my experience, when I keep all the goodness for myself, it begins to rot. And it begins to rot me. When people lavish compliments and praise upon me, and I don't disperse it to the other deserving people uh, who should have received it, it begins to do a spiritual rotting in me when I have way more wealth or material possessions than I could have ever asked for and I keep it all to myself, I see needs in the world, I see needs out in the community, but I keep it to myself. Something happens to me. Earthly, I'm fine. In fact, earthly, it looks like, oh, Kyle's doing great. Spiritually, things are beginning to perish inside of me. One of the things that I... I think that Jesus, why he does it that way is because in so doing, we can do no other than give away that which has been entrusted to us. If we're wise. Close here. Close here. Listen. Every time I get up to preach... Every time I take this stage, my hope is that I talk about the Jesus way, the Jesus lifestyle enough that you begin to see that the way of Jesus, the life of Jesus, not only has the ability, not only has the power to save the world, but if you commit to it, it has the power to save your life as well. It has the ability to save your life as well. Again, some of you are here today and if you were honest, you've been really unhappy with your life for a really, really long time. And again, I'm not talking about those of you who have gone through a particular amount of pain and suffering and hardship as of late. I'm talking about those of us who have spent the good part of this past year, years, plural, constantly obsessing and bitter and resentful about all the things we don't yet have. That we're not yet where we want to be. That we're not in that place of status or recognition yet that that person has or that person has where I always thought and dreamt I would be at this stage in the game. And listen, listen, you can totally do that. I ain't going to tell you, I mean, it's completely up to you. It's completely up to you. But I'm also going to tell you the same, the very same thing that a therapist said to me when I was working through this particular part of my journey. He said... It sounds like you are well on your way to waiting the rest of your life to be happy. Well on your way to waiting the rest of your life to be happy. I'm going to buy the worship team up. They're going to lead us in our uh, closing response song today, and I actually want you to, to do something. I want you to humor me for a moment, okay? Can you do that just one time? Here's what I want you to do. During the response song today, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, so earlier I talked about how sometimes I let past Kyle minister to current Kyle. There are other times in my life where I allow future Kyle to minister to current Kyle. So here's what I want you to do. Today, what I want you to do is I want you to spend these next several moments during this song. Maybe you're listening to this from home, and be, maybe you like want to write a letter from like future Kyle, or not, don't write it from future me to you, but you know what I'm saying. Future you to current you. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to ask yourself the question, what would future you tell current you that you need to do a better job of savoring? What would future you tell current you? Dude, you got all this going on around you. Like, you're going to miss it. Like, please, you don't know how fast it goes. You don't know how quickly it disappears. Stop right now and savor A, B, C, D, like all the things. I want you to take time right now before you leave today. What would future you Tell current you to savor, to be grateful for, to be sh- to share generously with other people. And then as you walk out today, make a decision as to whether or not you want to do it. That's the beautiful, mysterious thing about this relationship with Jesus. He's going to show us the way to life all the time. And it's up to us if we go. Choice is yours. Let's pray. Almighty God, here in the season of Advent, we are so many things, and uh, as we have talked about today, among them uh, we want to be grateful. We want to be more thankful. Not only for I mean, good gracious, all the material things going well in our lives and relational things that might be going well in our lives, but thankful to you, grateful to you for all that you've done for us. Things seen and unseen. But you know our human condition. You know that part of the way in which we are hardwired is we tend to give a lot more mental bandwidth to the things that have gone wrong, or the things that we don't yet have. And so Jesus, by your grace and by your power, we're just asking for your help today. We're just asking for your help this Advent season to help us make that shift. To help us to focus more and to savor more on the beautiful things that you have given to us. And let's say there are still things that maybe we obsess about them because we need them. They're not just like wants in life. They're needs, needs that we have to be healthy and thriving. Jesus, with those things, help us to trust that the God of the universe, the same one that knows all the sparrows who can count every single hair on our heads, help us to know and trust that if we are aware of those needs, you've been aware of them for so much longer. So God, we are grateful. We are thankful to you for all that you have given us. Thankful for all the ways in which you have loved us and cared for us, directed us, guided us, protected us. Now help us to move from a feeling of gratitude to a life of it, not just for our sake, but for the sake of the world. In Christ's name. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.